Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our talk about the plague, the the second plague pandemic, the Black Death, and uh, specifically some religious responses to it. Now, in parts one and two, uh, in part one, we sort of focused on the plague itself, some questions about how it was transmitted, uh, what the different uh, pandemics looked like, and so forth. And then in the second episode, we focused largely on religious responses to the plague in Christian Europe. Today we wanted to expand talking about religious responses to the plague and talk about some historical work on Islamic responses. Uh, But to begin this discussion, I I wanted to start by reading a wonderful tale that I came across in a paper by a scholar that I'm going to be referring to later in this episode. So this story was originally told by an Ottoman historian in the late 15th century about events that allegedly happened, I think, in northwest Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey. And uh, the translation and retelling of the story is by a modern historian named Nuket Varlik, who I believe is currently a professor in the history department at the University of South Carolina. But Rob, if you're ready, I'm, I'm going to read this tale. Let's do it. On the first night of January of 1494, while transporting a load from Gallipoli to Edirne with other fellow laborers, a wagon driver had an accident in Bolayir. When his ox was injured on the road and could not move any further, his fellow drivers went to town to bring help, leaving him alone to spend the night on the accident site. Later that evening, when the unfortunate wagon driver was crying in despair, he suddenly heard a loud noise, whereupon he saw two horsemen in black attire, astride black horses, racing toward him. In fear, he hid under the wagon and watched them going by like a lightning. Immediately after them, a horseman in green attire, riding a pale horse and waving a lightning whip, came by and called out to him, Oh, you driver, have you seen two horsemen in black attire riding black horses? When the driver showed him in which direction they went, the horseman then asked the driver what he was waiting for. Once the driver told him about the accident, the horseman descended from his horse and touched the leg of the ox three times, and the beast was miraculously healed. Upon seeing this, the driver moved toward the horseman in gratitude and inquired about his whereabouts. The horseman revealed himself as Prophet Hazir, helping those in need. He added that he was chasing the horsemen, quote, They are pestilence and plague. They live among people. God sent them. They obey the orders of God. I have received an order from God to expel them. They were eight in total. I killed six of them. If I can kill those two before they reach the seashore, there shall not be another plague for thirty years." Oh wow! I kind of want to see the the rest of the movie. I mean, this this sounds, yeah. this is del- delightfully cinematic. Yeah, the riders in black, the ring rates, and then uh, yeah, a, a hero, a hero in green with a lightning whip upon a pale horse, chasing down plague to kill it. Yeah, 
So this tale was originally set down by a 15th century Ottoman chronicler named Oruch, and I found the retelling in a paper called From Bet Noir to Le Mal de Constantinople, Plagues, Medicine, and the Early Modern Ottoman State by an author named Nuket Varlik in the Journal of World History in 2013. And this is a paper that documents evidence of how the conceptualization of plague and the administrative reaction to it within the Ottoman Empire changed over the course of several centuries. But uh, regarding that tale itself, one fact I found funny was that despite the supernatural details that make it seem like an obvious piece of creative storytelling, the original chronicler, Oruch, uh, apparently claims that it is based on the testimony of several trustworthy witnesses. Hmm. So I'm not sure what to make of that. But uh, anyway, Varlik highlights it in her paper as a fascinating example of popular plague narrative and one that reveals some common features of thought about epidemic disease in the Ottoman Empire. So apparently this story bears strong resemblance to other tales like it going back to the early Islamic period, in which there's usually like a man in green riding a pale horse who appears in times of epidemic disease or other struggle and helps people rid themselves of pestilence or rid themselves of jinn, which are a form of supernatural creature, a kind of demon that might be made of air or flame. Uh, and there are other common elements too, such as the, the figure in green uh, touching, the, touching a wound or touching an animal or, say, a leg three times in order to heal it. And so the hero in this story, given given the name Hizir here, is also known, I've seen spelled as uh, Al-Kidr or Al-Kadir, uh, some, so that's sometimes like A-L-K-H-A-D-I-R, uh, which means the green one, I believe, though I think there's some etymological debate about where that name comes from. It's largely taken, I think, to mean the green one or the verdant one. He's a sort of saint or guardian angel type figure who appears in Islamic lore going very far back. So uh, Varlik says this story would have had very familiar narrative elements to listeners and readers in 15th century Anatolia, but there are also unusual elements. For example, the portrayal of plague and pestilence as riders in black is, uh, she says, otherwise rare or perhaps even unique to this story at this point in Ottoman literature. Though it's uh, interesting to me, because at least now, that that's a motif that seems utterly natural, like depicting plague as embodied as a, as a rider wearing a black cloak on a black horse. Like that, that, that seems like something I would have encountered in stories all the time. So I'm wondering if it comes from this or if there, there are parallel traditions in, in other cultures. Yeah, because certainly from a Western perspective and with the, the benefit of, of, you know, multiple centuries to look back on, uh, mm -hmm. that's the, the, the Grim Reaper, the, the black uh, hooded figure like this is just such a staple of, of Western traditions and Western depictions of, of evil and, uh, and these, these forces of destruction. Yeah, but did it exist within Islamic thought or within Ottoman thought at the time? Beyond this one story, that is. Yeah. And so Varlik says this story is actually a pretty excellent reflection of how Ottoman Muslims of the uh, of the time period generally thought about plague uh, as part of what she she calls the Islamic plague cosmology of the 15th century which she characterizes as a system of explanations that are ultimately revolving around divine causation around God uh, so she writes quote according to this plagues were inflicted upon humans by 
by God, and God alone had the power to relieve humans from this ill. In its broadest outlines, this vision of divine origins and agency prevailed in the Islamic world throughout the ages, and as such remained the predominant discourse circulating both orally and in written texts. And so in this way, it sounds at least in part comparable to what we discussed in the previous episode regarding Christian Europe, which was that there may have been many different beliefs at the time in Christian Europe about the proximate causes of plague. You know, was it miasma, a type of bad air that's pervading the towns, mm-hmm. uh, or was it uh, astrological causes? You know, was it a, a conjunction of the, the planets coming into a terrible uh, catastrophic alignment or earthquakes releasing vapors from the ground or something? Uh, but whatever the proximate causes were, most authors in Christian Europe at the time would generally trace the causal chain at some point back to divine will. God sent this plague. But regarding the Islamic views on the causes of plague, I do want to be clear that Varlik qualifies this characterization by stressing that there is not just one monolithic Islamic tradition, nor was there only one type of view held by Muslims at the time. And in fact, the rest of her paper after this opening story is devoted to showing how the multiple discourses in Ottoman society, beginning mostly under this umbrella of uh, Islamic plague cosmology, where, where basically all of the causes of plague are divine, how that evolved over the years, and then especially during the 16th century, transformed into a radically different and more medical or naturalistic theory of the causes of plague and what the appropriate responses to it should be. Yeah, I think it's also worth remembering that the Islamic world during the centuries we're talking about here, they had access to a great deal of important knowledge, in some cases knowledge that had essentially been lost to Western Europe and, uh, and sometimes only accessed again in Europe through Islamic texts. So, uh, you know, in Western-centric uh, imaginings of things, it might be easy to, you know, to dream up this world of monks, libraries, knights, and peasants on one hand, and then this monolithic uh, religion on the other. Uh, but the, the Islamic world harbored some of the greatest minds of the age. Well, yeah, a lot of European wisdom of the time was actually derived from works produced by the Islamic world mm-hmm. in the Middle Ages, say from uh, a, a big example that we referenced in a previous episode is uh, the, the Persian polymath Avicenna, who mm-hmm. is uh, you know sometimes considered one of the, the fathers of modern medicine, and that his work was very influential not just in the Islamic world, but also in Christian Europe. Now, I want to come back and revisit uh, Varlik's uh, paper a little bit later in the episode, but for a bit, I'd like to shift to talk about some of the major themes in the existing comparative analysis of how Christians and Muslims responded to the Black Death and its recurrent waves, because I know this was one of the things that got you interested in this subject to begin with, but then it was one of those subjects where as soon as you start to get a peek in through the window, you realize that it's like very complex. <laughs> there's mm-hmm. an, like every time you read something and you think you know a fact, then there's like a, you read something else and realize, oh no, maybe that's not as clear as it once seemed. Um, and and this seems to be a common feature, not just of comparing. Uh, Christian and Islamic reactions to, say, plague in the Middle Ages, but a common feature of the history of comparative religious analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I like comparative religious analysis. It's really interesting. You can learn a lot from comparing and contrasting different religious traditions. But it's also very, very tricky. It's one of those subject areas where you can easily be tempted into forming inaccurate generalizations on the basis of 
of a small set of evidence and you and you've got a kind of natural zeal to identify patterns and trends you want to be able to make general statements and make characterizations so it looks like you have actually discovered facts that generally hold true but sometimes the you know the the zeal to make fact statements of that kind overcomes what should be some caution and uh, what what should what should be caution and humility in the face of trying to characterize something as complex as a religious response I actually remember this came up when we were reading papers about uh, iconic versus aniconic religious traditions you know mm-hmm. it seems like Scholars who engage in comparative religious analysis today are increasingly conscious of the need to be kind of frugal and tentative with generalizations about the similarities and differences between entire religions and and the communities that practice them. Because comparing and contrasting two religions isn't like comparing and contrasting the features of geometrical shapes. You know, like you can list the, the, all of the differences and similarities between a right triangle and an isosceles triangle or something. But, uh, but you know, uh, religions are extremely complex social phenomena. And sometimes you're not even aware of what you're missing out on as a function of the sources of evidence available to you. Yeah, like I think we've discussed this in terms of, say, Buddhism, for example. You know, I mean, you can if you talk very generally about Buddhism, well, are you accounting for the different regional versions of uh, um, of of the faith? Are you dealing with the different um, different social levels uh, within a given community? Like, there's so many different divisions that can be uh, you you can pull on, and if you're just being very general about it, yeah, it might help you prop up a point you're trying to make. But you're certainly not going to be doing a fair job of uh, of speaking to how that particular model of faith, uh, uh, you know, impacts uh, you know, uh, you know the, the human condition at large. I mean, I think about how difficult it is to make accurate generalizations about something as complex as say, a religion. Even when you live amongst it, like how mm-hmm. how would you make accurate characterizations about say? Catholicism in 21st century America, even though like you probably know a bunch of Catholics in America in the 21st century and like, you know, you, you, you're immersed in a culture in which this is this is one part of it. Um, uh, so it seems like you should have a really good view about it, but then it's still probably hard to make accurate generalizations. And now imagine you had to make those generalizations hundreds of years later working off of a select number of surviving books from the period. And that's mm. pretty much it. So anyway, all that to say that when you engage in this type of stuff, it's important to have a spirit of humility and and be cautious about how much you think you know. And following from that, something we, we talked about in the, the previous episodes is that much like the scientific history of the plague pandemic itself, the subject of the Islamic response, uh, religious response to plague has undergone some revision and reexamination in recent decades. And uh, so here I think maybe it makes sense to introduce two different uh, papers that I've been looking at uh, to introduce what seems to me to be one, uh, an example of sort of the dominant historical characterizations from, uh, say, the late 20th century, alongside a more recent paper I found talking about some reexamination of those claims. So to start with the uh, older characterizations, I'll refer to a paper I quoted in the previous episode. Uh, it's a piece called The Comparative Communal Responses to the Black Death in Muslim and Christian Societies by Michael W. Doles, uh, published in the 1970s. This is the historian Michael W. Doles, who lived 1942 to 1989. 
and this piece was actually the the place I found that description of the plague from the 14th century North African Muslim historian Ibn Khaldun, which was you, you remember that really haunting yes, description yes. of uh, like the cities being emptied and the way signs falling away. And what what did he say? It was as if the voice of existence in the world had called out for oblivion and restriction, and the world had responded to its call. Yeah. But anyway, so the, that's the the Dole's piece I'm going to be looking at, but then also providing some more recent or revised understanding, though not just responding to Dole's. I was also reading a uh, an article by Justin Stearns, who I believe is a, uh, a professor at uh, NYU Abu Dhabi, who specializes in uh, uh, Muslim history. And this one is called New Directions in the Study of Religious Responses to the Black Death. And I should stress that though Stearns disagrees with a few of Dole's generalizations uh, that that he makes, uh, he says that overall Dole's history is like a really important and excellent work. It is. It's, it does seem to be widely cited. Uh, yeah. So it's not like the older one is like bad. It's just like mm-hmm. he, you know, maybe could have had more nuance in it. Gotcha. Now, I think in the previous episode, we talked about how even if you put religious ideas aside for a moment, uh, that uh, Christian and Muslim societies in to some degree tended to share the same dominant mechanical theories of the spread of plague where they had mechanical theories of the spread. Uh, which was uh, the the most common was that they were rooted in miasma theory. Again, this is uh, the idea that there would be some form of bad air spreading the plague and that this would have been derived from the common heritage of medical authorities like Hippocrates, Galen, and Avicenna. But then Dole says that European Christian and Muslim reactions were quite dissimilar in terms of their religious responses, and that this tells us something about the essential identity of each religious culture. So uh, Dole has three major claims about the dominant views of Muslim religious authorities during the Black Death, and, and they go like this, and we can come back and analyze or maybe question these as we move along. So first of all, Dole says that plague was viewed as a mercy from God and a martyrdom for the faithful Muslim. And so this this is an interesting variation to the extent that it's true, because by being a martyrdom, this would make dying from plague and a form of honorable death that will ensure that the martyr is delivered to paradise. And this stands in contrast to the widespread Christian view that plague was a divine punishment for sin, uh, though Dole's mentions some Muslim opinion that plague could be a punishment for sin in some cases or, say, for non-believers. Mm. All right, so the second tenet is, quote, a Muslim should not enter nor flee from a plague-stricken land. And apparently this is a longstanding prophetic tradition in Islam, and to the extent that people did hold this belief, it would obviously interfere with them protecting themselves by fleeing plague-ridden towns. And then the third point is that, quote, there was no contagion of plague since disease came directly from God. And this is allegedly in contrast to Christian Europe, where although there was no germ theory of disease, you could see that there was some kind of rudimentary concept of contagion. The idea that somehow by being around plague, you could get plague, though the Mm -hmm. mechanisms might have been obscure. 
So I think the difference here is that Doles is claiming that while in Europe there was broadly an idea that plague could be transmitted by some kind of uh, brute physical causation, you could somehow just like get plague from the environment, in the Muslim world, plague was given to you directly by supernatural means, by God, and thus didn't physically spread. And Doles emphasizes these claims he makes by putting them in contrast to uh, what he what he would claim about Christian Europe. So he writes, quote, The importance of these three principles to Muslim society was in what they did not affirm. They did not declare that plague was God's punishment. They did not encourage flight, and they did not support a belief in the contagious nature of plague, all of which were prevalent in Christian Europe. However, he does qualify these. Uh, he, he also does not uh, treat these as the universal blanket statements. He says that while these three religio-legal tenets, or what he calls them, while they were generally held, it would be uh, untrue and unreasonable to believe they were held universally, and there was some measure of scholarly debate about them. So as for the first principle, the idea that uh, plague is a, is a mercy and a martyrdom from God— there is some historical and literary evidence of people believing the opposite in Muslim societies, that in some cases it was viewed as a punishment for sin, like it was commonly in Christian Europe, rather than as a mercy. So just one example I came across, I was reading that paper by uh, by Nukat Varlik, and she mentions a saying of a 15th century uh, Ottoman scholar who attributes plague to adultery. So, you know, mm-hmm. when adultery takes place, you know, th- that can only foster evil upon the world, and that evil becomes plague, which sounds kind of like some of the things that we were uh, talking about in the last episode that were commonly believed in Europe. Yeah, yeah. Now, there might be some doubt about these three characterizations he makes, but uh, first I did just want to mention some consequences that Doles believes follows from uh, these three uh, facts he believes to be true uh, about the Muslim response to plague. One major difference is that Muslim societies do not really seem to record what he calls, quoting another source, the, quote, striking manifestations of abnormal collective psychology of dissociation of the group mind that were present in Christian Europe. Um, So, for example, he says that there's really no evidence uh, that Muslim societies produced apocalyptic messianic movements in response to the Black Death, as did Christian Europe. So think of the the flagellants that we talked Mm -hmm. about last time. And he thinks that this may be in part due to a relative lack of theological precedent in Islamic tradition. Uh, Quote, furthermore, the fact that there was no certainty that plague was a divine punishment for sin removed the impetus for a cohesive puritanical and revivalist popular movement. Mm, Yeah, because if you think back to what we discussed in the last episode, there was this sense that the system is failing. Like, why are we still being punished by God for our sins? What more do we have to do? Perhaps we have to work outside the system, and it leads to these various heretical um, uh, threads, uh, such as the flagellants, you know, becomes a movement. And uh, yeah, you can see where if if there's A, not a precedent for those kinds of movements, and you you don't have as much of this emphasis uh, of of plague being directly caused by, by personal or communal sin— uh, then there's there's less room for that to to uh, to grow, right? Now there's another important uh, difference that the Doles argues. He says that minority communities in Muslim lands were not persecuted 
as a reaction to the plague, certainly not to the extent that they were in Europe. Uh, for example, the way that Jews were persecuted in communities throughout Christian Europe uh, as a sort of uh, a violent outburst in response to the plague. And Doles thinks this may be in part derivative of his claim that Muslims did not generally believe in contagion, but rather believed that plague was sent directly from God. So the way that would work is, if you can't really get the plague from a physical cause, like if, if you know, it's just God deciding whether or not you get plague, if you can only get it straight from the divine realm, then you couldn't really have these delusional conspiracy theories about Jews poisoning the wells and so forth. Now, now speaking of the, the, um, the, the Jewish persecution uh, during the, the Black Death, uh, I, I, had, uh, I want to throw in just one, one little uh, bit here. I had some notes on this, but then we ended up not covering it. And then we heard from a listener on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind uh, discussion module, which is the Facebook group for, for, the, for discussion of the show. I uh, heard from Adam, who is a rabbi, and was writing in about um, – uh, between these episodes about a book uh, that they'd read titled The Jew in the Medieval World by Jacob R. Marcus. So um, basically this added wrinkle uh, in the Jewish persecution during the Black Death, Death was that there was apparently this charge that Jewish people were less affected by plague and that this was uh, this indicated that they were somehow involved in it. Now, to, to be clear, as we as we stressed in the last episode, Jewish people did die of plague, like everyone else, and at an appalling rate. But there, it is sometimes uh, asked whether Jewish hygiene practices might have given them a slight edge over the rest of the population in mm. terms of of previous illnesses and outbreaks, and even with the Black Death. Um, so uh, it's it's interesting uh, to think about. It's it's worth stressing that this form of anti-Semitic messaging continued on for centuries, and you see variations of this even during the 20th century. There's um, I've seen images of, of a Polish poster, for example, that invokes fears of typhus connecting Jewish people to typhus. Uh, you know, which which is just another example of uh, of anti-Semitic persecution. But to your point. If there is a widespread belief that uh, that afflictions like this come directly from God and do, cannot be acquired from other communities or other individuals within your own community, uh, then there's less room to engage in this kind of thought. Right, because you, you couldn't think that it was like somehow a, a physical weapon being used against you by, say, uh, you know, a, a, a persecuted minority group that you had suspicions and resentments toward. Mm-hmm. In a way, all this ties into something that the Dole says, ultimately, where he characterizes the uh, Muslim reaction to plague as relatively, quote, pacific, collective, and controlled compared to the response to plague in Christian Europe. Uh, so uh, there's a long quote. I guess I'm not going to read this whole one, but I'm going to read part of it where he's sort of summing up what he sees as some of the major differences and how they grow from the different different theological emphases of these two religions. He says, quote, the cosmic settings of the two faiths are wide apart in their emphasis, where the Muslims primary duty was toward the correct behavior of the total community based on the sacred law. The Christians was with personal redemption, where the Quran supplied guidance, the Bible furnished consolation for the Muslim. The black death was part of a God oriented natural universe for the Christian. It was an eruption of the profane world of sin and misery. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but anyway, I've been mentioning that uh, with these three generalizations that, that Doles makes, I wanted to come back and, and possibly interrogate them or, or question them to some extent uh, by consulting this paper I was reading by, by Justin Stearns from 2009. And this paper makes clear Stearns is very much a fan of uh, of e- evaluating the religious responses of Christians, Muslims, and Jews to the plague. So it's not like he thinks it is not a worthwhile project to engage in comparative historical religious analysis. That's what he- he's clearly into. Um, but uh, he does talk about how previous scholarship has regarded the responses of the three religions here as fundamentally different in important ways, such as how they conceptualize contagion, like we were just talking about. And one of the things that Stearns emphasizes is that these distinctions are not necessarily so clear as they have seemed to other scholars, and that there is often more internal diversity and debate within each religion than has previously been appreciated, and more similarities between their responses than is sometimes appreciated. Hmm. Uh, I'm not going to go in depth on every point he, he makes in this paper, but there was one thing he gets into early on, slightly orthogonal to what we're talking about, but uh, but I did think was very interesting, which was about the idea of uh, local versus universal. And it's sort of the idea that you can't really understand the second plague pandemic if you only think about the initial outbreak in the middle of the 14th century in Europe. You need to think more broadly in terms of time and geography. But at the same time, you can't just think about the plague, the second plague pandemic, which in a way you could argue goes on for centuries, as something that had global effects continuously for the entire time that it was present, because each outbreak of plague in each individual region, each new epidemic, could be perceived by the people experiencing it as at least potentially local and unique. It was happening to them in the place where they lived, and it was this current disaster. Mm. You know, we, we can sometimes be lured uh, by the the breadth of history into thinking that people in other times and places in history understood they were living in a historical trend much more than they did. You know, like we, we don't even really understand the historical trends that we're living in until, uh, until we're right at the end of them often. Yeah. And, and sometimes not even then, like it's, you know, it's sometimes it's difficult to look back on previous decades and think of them as, as like historical periods in the same way we might view some, you know, like say the eighties, the seventies, the sixties, but uh, you know, like the last 20 years have kind of feel like just sort of a recent blur uh, to me. Like it's, it's hard to think of those as, as important, like pillars of time. Yeah. It's, you know, the present always feels kind of unique and, mm-hmm. and it is only in looking back that you're really able with confidence to identify all the ways in which the present for you now, the past is like the even further past. Yeah. And I guess also we have with modern media, of course, we have a more global perspective or we have access to a more global perspective at times regarding what's happening in the world. And there's also maybe a tendency to want to package everything. You know, you need a title for this segment. So, um, and, uh, and I, I guess you could make a case for some of that going on in prior ages with different, uh, you know, writers and, um, and commentators. But, uh, but yeah, it wasn't a situation where you would turn on your global news channel and see, you know, what we're calling this present darkness. Right. Now, here I want to come to Stearns' interrogation of some of these uh, generalizations made by, uh, made by Michael Doles. 
So I think the first one we should look at is uh, this question of did Muslims in the at the time of the Black Death generally accept a theory of contagion or not? I remember this was Dole's third generalization. He says that there really was no contagion of plague in, in the Muslim consciousness since disease came directly from God. It was caused supernaturally, not by any kind of physical mechanism that would allow it to spread from person to person or in an area. And Stearns argues that there's actually a lot at stake in our understanding of of these kinds of uh, attitudes toward plague, and and especially uh, you can see how characterizations of this kind get applied to situations that they they might not really be uh, good analogies for. For example, uh, he he cites the example of many Europeans hundreds of years ago, not like modern historians, but people Mm -hmm. in the 16th and 17th centuries, Protestant authors using what they believe to be the historical example of Turkish Muslims' reaction to the plague within arguments about whether Christians had a moral duty to stay in plague-ridden areas in order to help their Christian neighbors or whether they should uh, they should flee the disease in order to protect themselves. And authors who advocated fleeing the disease sometimes compared their opponents to Turkish Muslims because they believed that Turkish Muslims had a fatalistic attitude toward plague and would not try to escape it. You can find numerous references uh, in the 16th and 17th century of of European authors uh, talking about it like this, like, uh, for example, uh, Leibniz, apparently in mounting an argument against fatalism, used Turkish Muslims during plague outbreaks as an example of the philosophy of fatalism. They, They failed to escape areas affected by plague, even when they easily could have. And he regards this, I guess, as foolish. And here in this question about uh, about the belief in contagion in the Muslim world, we actually get to a, a specific historical figure, uh, a figure known as uh, Ibn al-Hatib. And uh, Stearns describes al-Hatib as the prolific and rightly celebrated Granadan vizier and man of letters. This was a scholar who lived in southern Iberia under the Emirate of Granada during the 14th century. Uh, and in the years after the Black Death, Al-Hatib wrote a famous treatise called On the Plague, in which he argued that the plague was, in fact, contagious, uh, despite some uh, some uh, theological judgments to the contrary, and offered citations of empirical evidence to prove it. Uh, Michael Doles in that piece uh, does acknowledge Al-Hatib and on the issue of contagion cites him as one very important uh, exception. So Doles writes, quote, uh, as for the third problem of contagion, the Andalusian scholar Ibn al-Hatib has attracted European attention for his observation and forceful statement of the contagious nature of the Black Death. This points, however, to the exceptional nature of Ibn al-Hatib's belief and the weight of opinion against him. Ibn al-Hatib was the only Muslim writer, to my knowledge, to argue against the accepted interpretation of plague. His forthright statement is probably one of the portions of his writings which gave support to his enemies in their later persecution of him as a heretic. Mm. Um, and so in the, in the latter thing here, this refers to the fact that at the, at the end of his life, Al-Hatib was caught up in a series of palace coups and political power struggles 
uh, after which it, in one of them, he was jailed uh, after being uh, convicted by a by a sort of panel of jurists. And at some point, uh, he was murdered in his jail cell he was, after being tried for heresy. Though Stearns argues that this was not necessarily as, as a result of his comments about the plague and may, may have just as well been a uh, – he just kind of a pure power play, like he was murdered by his political mm-hmm. opponents. And Stearns writes that this series of events, quote, has been widely construed by students of medieval European history as having been due to the rigid and intolerant nature of Islamic orthodoxy, and I suspect a general impression that scientific thought in the Muslim world was in decline. Um, so, uh, so Stearns argues that the, both of these ideas that, uh, that Muslims in general rejected belief in contagion and that Ibn al-Hatib was a quote, free thinking exception in a sea of fatalistic and narrow minded Muslim jurists and theologians, that both of these ideas have been around for a long time and are continuously represented in scholarship on the, the black death of the period. But Stearns kind of pushes back against them. Now, he does seem to agree that theological rejection of the theory of contagion was, in fact, the most common view in the pre-modern Arab Muslim world. Um, but he says that Ibn al-Hatib's support for contagion theory, rather than being the the single lone voice of dissent, was actually probably more like a particularly rhetorically powerful phrasing of a view that was a minority opinion, but was nevertheless pretty widely held and openly discussed by plenty of Muslim jurists. And, and this may, makes sense, right? Because outside of of the various like philosophical and theological ideas that that either population, European or, or Islamic uh, world, would have had, uh, there would have been like direct observation. There would have been, yeah, there, there would have been room to realize. There, there's something to the way this illness spreads. There's something about physical proximity to other people with the illness uh, that you could potentially pick up on. Though complicated by the fact that, as we discussed in the first episode, uh, I mean, the the transmission vectors of historical plague outbreaks are still somewhat obscure to us today. Like, there's still debate mm-hmm. about to what extent uh, plague was spread by contagion from other people. Remember, in the first episode, we talked about, so there's this idea for a long time that plague is primarily spread in bubonic form from uh, from bites, from fleas, from commensal rodents or other animals. And that probably represents some amount of spread. But then there are other ways it can spread. So you can get the pneumonic version of the plague and then it can be spread in aerosolized droplets. You know, people cough and, and spread it person to person that way. And then there is this more recent idea that maybe it was spread person to person, but through the vector of human ectoparasites, fleas and lice on people's bodies. But all this to say, because there is not one single way the plague is spreading, but probably multiple different routes, and we're still not sure what percentage of transmission these different routes represented, uh, it obviously must have been confusing. Yeah, yeah. And I also want to stress that, uh, as we've discussed in the show before, like observation and common sense do not always lead to scientific reality. You know, they can, yeah. these, these, you know, your gut instinct and just seeming, you know, observing how the wor- world works, this can and has uh, at times resulted in thoroughly non-scientific ideas. So uh, I, don't, I don't want to imply that in either group, it was just a matter of, oh, well, they, they just should have paid more attention and been more sensible. Right. No, no, I, I didn't think you were saying that. Okay. Just want to be clear. <laughs> 
but yeah, apparently Al Hatib was uh, was mounting empirical arguments for contagion. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, Stearns writes that quote: "Far from having been accused of heresy for his statement on contagion, even Al Hatib's opinions on the plague were debated by succeeding generations of scholars, as can be seen in a recently published collection of legal opinions from the 15th century, and in that his eventual trial for heresy was most likely politically motivated. You know, he was he, there. There was like a power struggle going." on. And Stearns uses the example of this one uh, uh, figure to make the point that while some broad trends within religious communities can be observed, Stearns does agree that the majority view among Muslim jurists and theologians at the time is that plague is not contagious and is caused supernaturally by God, but uh, but, but just disagrees that Al-Hatib was the only person pushing back against this. Again, as, as he says, it was, uh, it was more like a, it was a minority view that was expressed and debated. And so the broader point I think he's making is that you can you can get a much more accurate picture of historical trends by understanding the diversity of thought within communities at the same time that you're trying to identify the the broad or overriding trends that describe them. And from here, uh, actually, this is later in his conclusion that he cites this, but I, I found this really interesting. He quotes a completely inverse image of this comparative generalization about uh, about fatalism and belief in contagion in response to the plague. Um, so he quotes a 21st century Tunisian scholar who makes use of an interesting anecdote from a 14th century figure named uh, Ibn Marzouk al-Hafid. And al-Hafid writes that uh, in, in this 14th century work that he was sent by the Sultan of Tlemcen, which is in modern-day Algeria, to uh, on a journey to the Sultan of Fez. And at that time, there was a, a great outbreak of disease in the stretch of North Africa known as the Maghreb. And as they traveled through the land, um, this, uh, this figure was accompanied by a group of messengers, including one of whom was a Christian. And here I just want to read from uh, Stern's citation of, of this story, of this, this 14th century uh, uh, figure. Quote, Their intention in doing what they did was not to approach the epidemic by entering the castle. This was their choice, and I was in agreement with them. The Christian asked, What's with these people who don't enter this place? His translator, as he didn't speak Arabic well, said to him, They have fled from the epidemic. Then the Christian said what we are told had the following meaning. Fleeing will not save them. There is no doubt that what God has decreed is what will be. When I heard these words, I was dismayed and confused about what I was doing, as it was well known that according to prophetic tradition, one shouldn't approach such an area. I rejected completely that it should seem that one who had no knowledge of the Hadith, who is an unbeliever, should be greater in entrusting himself to God's order and more believing in what had been decreed. I knew that it was a trial, so I advised advancing and entered the castle, though I didn't order the others what to do." Uh, so this is interesting because Stearns notes that uh, there's at least uh, – he cites a modern Tunisian scholar who has used this historical anecdote to argue the exact inverse, <laughs> that, that Christians were fatalistic about the Black Death, and uh, that though there were a diversity of views among Muslims, some argued for fleeing the plague and establishing quarantines on the basis of contagion theory. 
Hmm. Uh, so I thought that was funny about how it can go both ways. And, uh, and while there is, a, of course, a lot to be learned from comparative studies of uh, religious interpretation in natural events, this kind of project can also just make it so tempting to make misleading generalizations on the basis of a single anecdote that you're aware of and, and sort of uh, gloss over internal diversity and disagreement. Hmm. Now, Stearns makes some other points in this paper that I think go to, uh, apart from the contagion point, uh, the, the other two characterizations that were made by Michael Doles. The first one was that uh, plague was generally viewed as a mercy from God and a martyrdom for the faithful Muslim. And second, that uh, a Muslim should not enter nor flee a plague-stricken land. And on these subjects, uh, I thought this was interesting. Uh, and, and this goes along with something that I think comes through in several places in, in Stern's argument, which is that he argues that there's often more similarity between the three different religions' responses than is appreciated, and that sometimes these theological debates about the plague are actually largely reproduced within each monotheistic religious community. Mm-hmm. So they, they share some similarities in their internal controversies and reactions. But he does argue, as uh, Dulles, I do think, acknowledge somewhat, that there were also views within the Muslim world that characterized the plague as a punishment for sin, as uh, like the dominant view in Christian Europe was. And that, in fact, in some cases, uh, some Jewish sources from the time uh, mentioned plague as being a punishment for sin as well. This just seems like this is a, a common place for the monotheistic religions to go mentally. Yeah. And as for some of these uh, interesting internal controversies, Stearns talks about uh, some conflict even between some of the ideas mentioned here, like, for example, uh, he goes on to explain some of the origins of the, the prophetic tradition that one should neither enter nor leave an area where that is stricken by plague. Um, and he says that uh, the, these uh, these prophetic traditions, they gave rise to some some difficulties in reconciling them with each other that had to be in these differences had to be sorted out by later Muslim jurists and theologians. So for example, one contradiction might be on one hand, you have a belief that dying of plague can be a form of martyrdom, which is an honorable and and good death, a mercy from God. And then on the other hand, you can have the belief that if plague is in an area, you shouldn't enter it. And so you could view these things as as possibly being in contradiction with each other, but uh, much like as we saw with the Christian tradition, I I think Stern's uh, idea here is that this just sort of gives rise to competing takes. Well, like with any other religion, you've got some authorities emphasizing one half of the tradition, some authorities emphasizing the other, uh, some making mention, uh, little mention of either one and just sort of telling people to get away from the plague. Mm. Though this does make me think about uh, I, I, a point of comparison that kept occurring to me, which was really funny, which is like just the, the trouble you get into if you just assume or try to infer religious beliefs and practices from the the canonical traditions or, or scripture of a religion. It would be like trying to – do you think you could infer what Christians believe just by like looking at passages in the Bible? <laughs> oh, yeah. If you just draw one, yeah. sometimes uh, rather out of context, yeah, you can – yeah, you could you could make all sorts of uh, of, uh, of of blanket statements. You know, in in terms of thinking about um, about illness as uh, and, and disease as being a martyrdom, um, 
uh, I'm, I'm reminded of something from, from, uh, uh, from, from later centuries in, uh, in European tradition, the, uh, the Eisenheim altarpiece by Matthias Grunwald. Uh, this would have been the, the, the early 16th century. But mm-hmm. these are famous uh, depictions in which we see Christ himself uh, suffering from some sort of skin disease uh, that, that I believe is thought to be um, ergotism. Uh, but but in these cases, uh, f- physical disease, physical ailment, it takes on the, you know the trappings of holy suffering. Well, yeah, that's a really good point. And actually, this is a thing that Stearns mentions. I, I, I skipped over it, but there is a part where he points out that actually thinking of death from plague uh, as as a form of martyrdom is not totally unique to to Islam. Uh, there's all there are also Christian traditions. They yeah. characterize plague death as a martyrdom. They're not, uh, they're not extremely common in Christianity, but he cites, for example, uh, Cyprian, who, who hel- apparently held this view that you could be a martyr after dying from plague. Hmm. Or maybe not uh, plague specifically, I'm not sure, but from, certainly from epidemic disease. Right. Another interesting uh, point of similarity I was noticing is uh, in reading about Stearns and then thinking about some of the stuff we talked about in the last episode uh, – was the idea of of public demonstrations in response to plague, uh, mm. pub, like public processions of various kinds. Uh, for example, Stearns writes that a common response to plague in Muslim cities throughout the Middle East was for people to go outside the city and fast and pray in groups. Uh, and this is, uh, he says, similar to how Muslims might often appeal for deliverance from other disasters, non-disease disasters uh, like drought. You know, they might gather outside the city to fast and pray for rain. Mm. But there's another thing I really take away from these discussions, which is uh, something that, that Stearns emphasizes in this paper, uh, which is that there's still a lot to learn and that is potentially available to learn uh, not just like is is definitely lost to history because he says there are plenty of plague treatises from the time period, especially reflecting uh, uh, Jewish and Muslim views that he says, quote, still languish in manuscript. So I, I think what that would mean is that you, there are cases where we have some kind of artifact or original manuscripts do exist, but they are waiting for, for scholars to get to them. Basically, we're waiting oh, on wow. them to be edited and translated. So there's still a lot more to learn about the period. Uh, and so and he he yeah. suspects these will probably further tell against blanket generalizations of of religious responses and might reveal more and more internal diversity of thought. Yeah, because if this is, if it is true that basically within any of these faiths we're discussing, you had the same sort of arguments going on, the same sort of um, of discussions, then that will just be further illuminated through the translations of these and the um, and the saving of these old texts. Yeah. Now, one thing I wanted to come back to before we wrap it up is uh, that paper I quoted at the beginning of the episode, the uh, the paper by uh, Nuket Varlik from the Journal of World History in 2013 called From Bet Noir to Limal de Constantinople, uh, Plague's Medicine and the Early Modern Ottoman State. And uh, so in this paper, she she traces an interesting history. So she makes an argument that Within the Ottoman Empire, so this would be the uh, the Muslim Empire based out of uh, Anatolia, modern day Turkey, that eventually spreads and, and controls much of the the Middle East and North Africa and parts of Eastern Europe. She says that there is a transformation over time of how plague is conceptualized, and this this happens especially in the 16th century. And this is something that's really important to consider too. We've been talking about 
trying to appreciate the the nuances within religious communities and the, the internal diversity, but also uh, it's important to remember how views even of a single religious community change over time. So she says that before the 16th century, plague is seen mostly in religious terms, like we've been talking about, with, uh, quote, with the general outlines of an Islamic plague cosmology, which had God and divine agency at its very core. And so under this view, like we've been saying, mo the most common belief is that epidemic diseases were sent directly from God, and only God had the power to alleviate your suffering. Uh, though within the supernatural framework, of course, you could appeal to other supernatural interventions, such as the intercession of saints. And that makes me think about the story we started with, with uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the saintly figure in green. And she writes uh, in her conclusion, quote, in this configuration, disease was seen as an unfamiliar and unruly presence, a presence that the Ottomans imagined themselves as having no control over. Even in the medical works of the era, this supernatural vision was juxtaposed with the perplexing amalgamation of knowledge they had recourse to, which must have only confirmed perceived feelings of vulnerability. But then, then after this, uh, she, she charts how during the 16th century especially, there is a pretty rapid transformation of attitudes toward plague in the Ottoman Empire, including a shift from a, a majority supernatural view of disease to a much more natural and medical view of disease. So instead of being viewed as, as strange and unfamiliar threats over which we had no control, diseases came to be seen more as a, quote, familiar aspect of the natural realm, just one part of how the world works and something that we do have some kind of power to intervene against. And so th this took the form of a, a new corpus of scientific knowledge about epidemic disease that was developed in, in the 16th century. And, and uh, this would include discoveries about the causes, transmission, and prevention of infectious disease. And that this new knowledge led to changes in public health policy from the Ottoman state. It sort of took plague from being a predominantly supernatural issue and made it instead a political problem. Well, that does seem the healthier trajectory for, for things to take, you know, to, to go from the supernatural to the, the idea that, yes, this is something that can be managed on some level. Yeah, and it's interesting to think also, though, that, um, I mean, uh, among all of these religious communities, uh, Christians, Jews, and Muslims, all still today have religious um, approaches to disease, even if they would probably rely on science-based medicine as the primary intervention and way to prevent disease and, and, and heal yourself from disease. If you do catch it, uh, it's interesting that like it, uh, the, the introduction of science-based medicine as the primary effective way of combating disease has not removed the religious response to disease. Right. Right. I mean, all of these communities still have, uh, religious thoughts about epidemics and still pray about them and, and all that. I guess another thing this just uh, this whole discussion really drives home is is how amazingly lucky we are in terms of the the medical interventions that exist today. I mean, you know, we everybody's exhausted living through a pandemic for the past however many god awful months this thing has been. But I mean, we we're so lucky to have the the kind of the vaccines and, and the other interventions that we have today that we're. Uh, just not on the table for, for people in the, the 14th century. Yeah, absolutely.
By the way, earlier I mentioned a uh, Polish language anti-Semitic poster, and I just wanted to throw in a little more information on this because uh, I kind of referred to it in passing. Uh, but this is a poster you can find at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum's website at ushmm.org, um, where it's labeled anti-Semitic poster published in Poland in March 1941, quote, an anti-Semitic poster published in Poland in March 1941. The caption reads, Jews are lice, they cause typhus. Uh, this German-published poster was intended to instill fear of Jews among Christian Poles, unquote. So I just wanted to provide additional uh, uh, additional backstory on, on that particular poster I was referring to, and you can look it up if you visit this website. All right. Well, this has been a fun multi-part examination here, and uh, I, I believe we're going to move on to other topics at this point, but we would love to hear from everyone out there if you have particular insight, uh, if, if these episodes have touched on an area of expertise or, or interest, uh, and you would like to weigh in, uh, then by all means, we'd love to hear from you. And it's not impossible that we could return to this topic if it looks like there are some, uh, some interesting angles uh, that, that need further exploration. In the meantime, if you would like to check out other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, you will find them in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you will get wherever you happen to grab your podcasts. We have core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. We have uh, Listener Mail on Mondays, Artifact on Wednesdays, and on Friday we do a little Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most of the science and just talk about a strange film. And on the weekends, we do a Vault episode. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.